uh, we're studying through the book of Acts, and we'll be in Acts chapter 17. So um, I'm going to give you a, a real fast overview via the screens, so keep your eye on it, Acts chapter 17. The city of Athens was a metropolis of the ancient world, and when Paul arrived here, he would have seen everywhere statues of gods and deified heroes of history. The Greeks were a people who loved poetry, philosophy, sculpture, architecture, with the arts and sciences both equally revered. Paul was alone when he arrived here, but despite his feelings of loneliness, he was not idle, but actively sought out seekers for truth. Paul went as his custom was to the synagogues, but also to the marketplace where he met certain philosophers of the Epicureans and Stoics. It is believed that here in the ancient Roman Agora, Paul would have come and reasoned. Even though they immediately disregarded Paul's teachings, he slowly gained their respect as they realized that his knowledge, intellectual power, logical reasoning skills, and oratorical skills were superior to theirs. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he was able to meet his hearers where they were and soon gained an opportunity to speak in one of the most sacred spots in Athens, Mars Hill. Across from the Acropolis here on Mars Hill was a place where matters connected with religion could be carefully considered. Away from the hustle and bustle of the marketplace, Paul would be able to speak without interruption. Paul had no doubt caused quite a stir when he came to the city, and he was now surrounded by poets, artists, philosophers, and scholars, as they wanted to hear what Paul had to say, asking, what is this new doctrine, and what does it all mean? As Paul prepared to speak, he sought to find some connection with his hearers, and started out by talking about the altar dedicated to the unknown God. He said that they ignorantly worshipped this God, but then he started to tell them who God is. Guided by the Holy Spirit, he did not needlessly irritate his listeners or directly attack their gods, but tactfully and with skill, he drew their minds away from their gods to the true God who was unknown to them. He then shared a truth that was revolutionary at the time and something that humanity still struggles with today, that this same God created the whole human family and that all men are created equal. Paul appealed to them saying that at times of ignorance, God winks, but when we come to a fuller understanding of things, there is a greater level of accountability and God asks us to repent. Paul then pointed toward the judgment and the assurance that Jesus, who was raised from the dead, gives. At this point, it brought an end to Paul's speech and his labors here in Athens, as some laughed and others said they would hear him again later. Ultimately, they rejected what Paul presented, and though they boasted of a refined culture and being educated, they turned their backs on what Paul taught. His work was not completely in vain, as the Bible records that one of its most prominent citizens, Dionysius, along with some others, accepted the message. Even though Paul's work was not numerically successful, his labors here provide an example of how to tactfully and with skill share the message to a learned audience. 
Taking the simple gospel message and sharing it in a learned environment is not easy, but it's something that must be done. May we have tact, skill, and patience as we witness to whomever God calls us to, whether they're rich or poor, simple or educated. There you go. Let's close in prayer. We've got our name in it out back fast. Um, you know, they say that one of the most fearful things a person ever does is speak in front of people. They put that up there. I do that for a living. Um, but uh, I, there was a time that, uh, there was one time that I, it was a, a very fearful experience for me. I was asked to speak at a camp of elementary kids, a Bible camp, for the week. And doing a 30-minute lesson to third and fourth graders, that's one thing. But when you have to do it all week, it was a rather frightening experience. Now, I'm not sure if uh, speaking with third and fourth graders for a week is any worse than philosophical elites, university professors like the Apostle Paul did in Athens. I don't know what would be worse, but that's what Paul did in Athens. So take your Bibles, if you're not there already, Acts chapter 17, and um, Paul has left Berea, uh, where he had been, where we saw last week, and he leaves Silas and Timothy there, and then he travels by sea. He'll go to go down uh, to the seacoast and get on a boat and head to Athens, uh, roughly um, 300 miles away. So verse 14, just to pick up uh, verse 14 of chapter 17, then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. Silas and Timothy remained there in Berea. Now those who escorted, uh, escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and then receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So Paul is now alone in Athens. So we pick up the story in verse 16. Verse 16 says, uh, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, so he's hunkered down in Athens, waiting for Silas and uh, Timothy to come. It says that his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city that was full of idols. His spirit is provoked. He's deeply distressed because everywhere he looked, there were idols, the idols of Athens. Athens, really interesting city, one of the oldest cities in, in the world. Um, when Paul was there in Athens, I think that the city was still well over a thousand years old, um, named for the goddess Athena. Athens was um, known for its um, elite scholarly uh, history. This was the, the place where Socrates came from and, and um, Plato and Aristotle. and uh, the, the heyday of of Athens was about 500 years before Paul even arrived there. And uh, all these uh, incredible thinkers and philosophers of mankind, Sophocles and Euripides and all these famous people, they said more people, brilliant minds, came from that city of Athens than any other city in the world in the history of mankind. So they took great pride in themselves and their history. Uh, but it had lost its luster at this time of Paul. It was a city about maybe 10,000 people by now. It still had a very um, prestigious university. It was still considered a, a, a center of cultural elitism and, and brilliant minds, uh, but it, was, it had lost its luster. It wasn't in the heyday when Paul was there. But as Paul travels about the, the, the community, um, he sees, of course, all these temples 
something like 30,000 temples, they say, were in Athens, uh, the chief of which was on the Acropolis, the, the temple to um, uh, Athena, uh, the Parthenon. And this, Paul would have seen this up there on the hill, the Parthenon, as well as 30,000 other ones. Everywhere you looked, there were statues and gods and goddesses and temples. In fact, uh, uh, Petronius, who was a, a Roman writer, said that if you were in Athens, it was e easier to find a temple than it was a human being in Athens because there were just so many of them everywhere you looked. Uh, and so Paul comes into the city and he sees this and he is deeply disturbed, it says. He is provoked within. I'm not sure all what that meant. If he was, um, it, what, what type of visceral response? If it was anger, he sees all this paganism and idolatry, or was it just deep sorrow, deep, uh, uh, some deep disturbance within his spirit as he's walking around that community and sees all that. So what does he do? Well, we keep reading. Verse 17 says, so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles. Now, that was typical Paul. He would go to a city, and if there was a synagogue, as we saw last week, it takes 10 men to have a synagogue, uh, and uh, Philippi didn't have one, but Athens did, so there was a Jewish uh, contingency there. So he went to the synagogue, began to debate, to dialogue, as was his custom, open up the scriptures, connected the dots of Old Testament prophecy about Jesus, and he did all that. But it also said, the last part of 17, he also went to the marketplace, which is called the Agora. Every day he went there, and he would dialogue with those who happened to be present. So he would just kind of cold turkey connecting with people and talking with people in the, the marketplace. Well, we keep reading, and verse 18 says, and some of those people in the marketplace, there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who were conversing with them. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others were saying, well, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Because, look at the last part of verse 18, it says, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, good old Paul, he wasn't going to miss a beat, whether it was in the synagogue with the Jews or out on the street with these philosophic elites, these brainiacs from the university. Uh, he was talking about Jesus. And he was saying that Jesus had been raised from the dead. It was intriguing, although some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were saying he's just an idle babbler. An interesting phrase, the word meant to be a seed picker, like a, like a chicken. Pick here, pick a seed here, pick, 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 pick a little seed there. And it, it, was, a, it was a demeaning uh, concept. Uh, they, they were looking down their nose at Paul, saying, oh, he picked a little thought here, and he, he grabs a thought from here, and he, he, there's nothing cogent, coherent with Paul. He picks a little thought here, pick a little there, pick a little there, pick here, pick there, pick there. And others were saying, mm, it's, it's, it seems to be more than that. He seems to be talking about some deities and, and Jesus and resurrection and all that stuff. Now, these, these philosophers, Epicureans, um, interesting people, you can read if you haven't at some point in your, your studies, uh, Epicurean philosophy was this more hedonistic mindset. It was this idea that um, 
uh, I think the mantra was, we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I mean, it's pursue pleasure at all costs. Pleasure is good, pain is to be avoided, um, so let's just, uh, you know, grab all the gusto we can. Avoid pain, find happiness, all will be well. The pursuit of pleasure and happiness. That was Epicureanism. Stoics, well, you know, that would be the opposite. You talk about someone who's a Stoic, they, um, they're kind of stone-faced and they're set their chin and they're going to go through life from hell or high water, no matter what happens, because that, that's, that's what you do in life. Stoics uh, had this, um, this, raised this monument to personal discipline and, and, um, uh, and self-control. Uh, pleasure was not the ultimate pursuit. In fact, it was not necessarily good. And pain wasn't necessarily evil. Um, if there's any Star Trek Trekkies out there, I was thinking, you know, uh, the Epicureans were like Captain Kirk, you know, some pleasure. In the, in the, but the, Mr. Spock, he would be the Stoic. Uh, well, you had the Epicureans, you had the Stoics, and that philosophy all kind of converging together. Warren Wiersbe in his commentary simplifies it and says this, the Epicureans would say, enjoy life. And the Stoics would say, endure a life, but it remained for the Apostle Paul to come and explain you can enter life through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So Paul is in this town, in this city. He sees all this. He's engaging these people, and his heart is, is deeply troubled with this idolatry, this, this, these people who are incredibly intelligent but foolish and their understanding of God. Um, well, verse 19, it says, and they took Paul, uh, and they brought him to what was called the Areopagus, which would be the, the, the Areopagus was the gathering of the, of the kind of the leading thinkers, the fathers of Athens. These were the people who sat uh, in a, um, more of a judicial role. All things religious, all things civic, they would be the ones who would determine things. They were the town council, the city elite, the city fathers, the Areopagus. And so Paul is so intriguing, they said, we've got to take him to the head boys here on Mars Hill. And so they take him to Mars Hill, and these people ask him, last part of verse 19, may we know what this teaching is, what you're proclaiming, you know, about this Jesus and and a resurrection, and, and we, we, we want to know this stuff. So, again, we keep reading. They take him to the Areopagus. May we know these things, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. And then Luke adds a little parenthetical statement in verse 21, and he says, Now all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. I... I got a chuckle here because it's like um, Luke is putting his finger in the eye of these Athenians who prided in themselves and their great intellectual prowess and abilities. And Paul, he was just an, an idle babbler, picking here and picking there. And Luke basically is saying, well, guess who are the pickers? It was the Athenians. All these great minds would come together and they were just talking about what's new, what's new, what's out there, what's, what's and they would sit around. You know, th these are the guys that would do this, right? You see the pictures of them, they, they had their hand on their, and they're d debating philosophers and the long beards, and that's what they did. And that's who Paul 
is now in the presence of. So he stands up in the midst of the Areopagus, and we keep reading in verse 22, and, it's, and he says, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, let me tell you about it, this I proclaim to you. Um, th- this is brilliant. This is, this, I love this, this talk of Paul's. Um, he, he's contextualizing the message, right? Now, he just didn't say, okay, open up your Bibles, you know, go to the, uh, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah and what, what not. Didn't, he, didn't even bring out the, the scriptures. Um, but he says, you know, while I was walking around your fair city, you know, I noticed you're very religious. He's almost like commending them. But he says there was one altar there that said the unknown God. And so he, he's, he's, he's got to... He's going to take what he's going to say. He's going to build it around that idea. What you worship in ignorance, I'm going to fill you in on. So he contextualizes the message to their um, immediate situation. We'll see in verse 28 he does that by quoting some of, their, uh, some of the poets, ancient poets, Epimenides, uh, a Cretan uh, who lived in like the 6th or 7th century B.C., and another one, Eratos, who was... Uh, a third century B.C. poet. Uh, so he brings in uh, authors and people that his audience would have been familiar with. I mean, this guy was smooth. Paul was uh, connecting with his audience and talking about that, getting their attention, and, um, because he's got some really important things to say. So we keep reading in verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. He said, I'm going to tell you about this unknown God. He's the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And he's determined that they would, verse 27, seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and exist, we have our being, as even some of your own poets, and that's where he quotes uh, um, these, these ancient poets, for we also are his children. And then he says in verse 29, so being then the children of God, We ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because, verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising that man from the dead. Uh, a marvelous message to these brilliant minds of Athens. Let me try to just summarize this message. I think Paul does two things. He first of all focuses on the transcendence of God, the greatness, the loftiness of God, the otherliness of God. 
Let me tell you about the unknown God. He's the one who's created all things. He's made everything. Everything you see, he's made. He's created it. And he is the Lord. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. He is in charge of all things. He made all things. He runs all things. He is the supreme ruler of all things. And Athenians, he doesn't need you. You, you can't confine him, and it must, he must have pointed at that point to the Parthenon. You can't confine him to a box, to something man-made, as glorious as it was. He doesn't fit into that box. He doesn't live in a, in a temple made with hands, the 30,000 temples and the gods that there were in that city. No, you can't confine him to that. He doesn't live in temples that were made with hands, nor is he served by human hands. What you do in those temples, the, the sacrifices you give and the, the things that you do to appease that God or get on their good side and, and manipulate the gods through all these things that you would do, let me tell you about the, the one true God. He made everything. He's the supreme ruler of the heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples like this. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need anything you may offer him. In fact, he gives you everything. Everything you have, life, breath, all things. He's the giver of that. And he made, it says in verse 26, from one man, now, again, he doesn't take, take your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter, you know, 1, 2. He doesn't do that. He just says he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Now, folks, you can't miss this either. This is a little dig at the Athenians. Um, this, is a, 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 this is a really interesting um, uh, the way that Paul is is shaping the message. You see, the Athenians would look back and say, who, who, who is like us? We are unique from all the nations of the face of the earth. It's kind of like American thing. You know, we're, we're, there's not, 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 not nobody like us. And Paul just shatters that by saying, let me tell you the real truth. From one man, God made everybody. You're all related. We're all connected. And he has set the habitations and the boundaries of every nation. He could have quoted from Nebuchadnezzar in the, um, in the 5th century B.C. who took over Israel, who said uh, um, God raises up rulers and he takes down rulers. God is in charge. He sets the habitations of nations. He sets their boundaries, the times that they're going to exist. This God, he said, who is the unknown God, this little temple that you've built, I'm going to tell you about him. He made everything. He made you. He made me. We are sustained by him. He doesn't need us. He's the sovereign creator and Lord of all, heaven and earth. And every nation, every city, every people group has been ordained and situated by God himself. Even you, Athenians, even you. He'll go on and he'll talk about it. He's also fixed a day of judgment. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. So Paul is talking about the transcendence of God. What you worship in ignorance, I'm going to tell you about him. And he gives this lofty, marvelous perspective of a holy, separate, transcendent, glorious God. But second of all, he talks about how God is very near. He is the imminence of God. He's very imminent. Verse 27, he says that God has set man to seek him 
if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. He's very present, very near. Verse 28 says, for in him we live and move and exist. As even one of your old poets said, we are his children. And being children of God, verse 29, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold, silver, stone, an image formed by what we do. In other words, what Paul is saying is that God is not far from each one of us. He gives us our breath. He's deeply engaged in the affairs of mankind, and he's our divine parent. Every human being born in this world is created in the image of God, has that divine spark stamped within him, the image of God, the imago Dei. So why would you think, Athenians, that you could create the image of God out of gold, silver, or some object of your own artsy craftiness? You are the image of God. He's created you. He owns you. He's a sovereign Lord. He's transcendent, but he's right very near if you could find him. And again, it's a little poke in the eye to the Athenians because the word and terminology that Paul uses here in um, verse 27, that perhaps you might grope for him and find him, implies really an impossibility. It's like Paul is saying, you know, Athenians, the way you're going about this, you're like a blind guy in a dark room and you're just kind of groping around. You've been made in the image of God. You've been made for a relationship to him. You've been created to seek him. But you're blind people in a dark room and you're just kind of groping and bumping into things, even though he's not far from you. But the, the way Paul words this is, shows that the, it's the impossibility of what you're doing, Athenians. Oh, the unknown God will continue to be unknown to you because you're going about it totally wrong. You have no idea who he is. You've been created in his image. You're children of God, but don't think that this divine nature can now be packaged in silver and stone, created in these 30,000 gods or temples. So his conclusion, verse 30, Therefore, having overcome the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man that he has appointed. That man was raised. That's the proof he's furnished to all men. He's raised him from the dead. What's Paul's conclusion? You better get right with this God. You better change your thinking. That's what the word repent means, metanoia. Here are all your gods. You've been pursuing all this intellectual um, uh, gobbledygook. You've been seed pickers yourself. Well, you better change your thinking because I've just presented to you the true God. He uses this phrase, God has overlooked the times of ignorance. It's an interesting little phrase. Um, Therefore, God overlooked the times of ignorance. I think he's talking about that Old Testament period, overlooking that, those times of ignorance where God had uh, raised up a special people. He revealed himself to one people, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. But then Jesus came. 
He left his throne in glory, and he wrapped himself up in humanity, and he comes as a visual God person, fully man, fully God, into this world with a proclamation that God so loves this world. He sent his son to die, to pay the penalty for our sins, so that anyone from any culture, from any nation, from any place in the world could have a relationship with this eternal God through faith in Christ. Because he is God, he died, and he was raised to life. The times of ignorance are over. That's what Paul is saying. The Son of Man has come. He developed that, by the way, in his letter to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 3. But the times of ignorance are over. Now there will be accountability. I am proclaiming to you this Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. He's God. He came and paid for your sins. He died. He rose again. It's time to switch your thinking from all these old gods to the one true one. That was Paul's message. Redirect your thinking from the idols to Jesus. Why? Again, verse 31, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through that man appointed. Judgment is coming. You know, I, I find it, 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 it just, this is just a fascinating talk that Paul does to these brilliant minds, the Epicureans, the Stoics, and the Areopagus. He goes into the center of cultural elitism of the world that produced the Socrates and the Aristotles and the Platos and all the other big brainiacs of human history. And he says, you're missing something. And if you continue to miss it, the results are going to be tragic. There's one God, and he made us all. And he's the sovereign king and ruler of all. He set the boundaries of all the nations. You are nothing. He doesn't need you. There's nothing you can offer God. There's nothing you can make a difference with him. But he's coming again. And he's fixed a day. And if you don't orient your thinking properly and align it with that God, you are in deep trouble. Where's the message of love and kindness? You know, the gentle Jesus, lowly and mild, and, and God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Not that that's not true. Maybe Paul said it. But on this message, on this Mars Hill, it was, your thinking is wrong, and it has been for millennia. There is a God that you don't know, and I'm telling you who he is, and you better get your thinking in line with that God, because a day is coming, and judgment is going to fall. That was his message. That was his message. Paul would later write to the Thessalonians, back to that church, something similar. He said the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven one day with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who don't know God, those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destru destruction 
away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified with the saints on that day. Eternal destruction. Um, what must have these people thought? Well, we know, I mean, verse 32 continues, and it says, now, when they heard this about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Others were saying, well, we'll hear you again concerning this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But verse 34 does say, some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, one of the Areopagites, and a woman whose name was Demers. And there were others as well. So one of those prestigious fathers of Athens, Dionysius, heard these things and he said, you know what? It, it got him. It got to his heart. And he put his trust in Jesus, as did this, we don't know who Damaris was, but must have been a leading woman of Athens. And there were others who heard it. So some came to believe. Some said, I don't know. I, I, I'd be willing to discuss this further. And others are saying, you've got to be kidding. You continue to be an idle babbler, and I want nothing to do with you. And folks, all around us today, maybe in your place of work, in your neighborhood, certainly in this world, there are those who sneer. You share the good news about Jesus, that he left his throne in glory. He came, and he was a real man who really existed, but he was God in the flesh, who came expressly to die for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God for all of eternity. And then he rose again on the third day, and there'll be people who just, that's just a fairy tale, it's a myth. And it seems like increasingly that is being pushed aside as nonsensical in our world today. Oh, we pride ourselves in our sophistication, do we not, in this society today? And then there's others who say, you know, I'd be willing to talk some more about it. I'm just not sure. And we can... We can probe it further with them, and we can develop that relationship, and we can talk more. And then, and then there are some who will hear that message, and they believe it. And they put their trust in Christ, and they're forever changed for all of eternity. That's all in God's hands. All Paul did was get up. He contextualized his message. He understood his audience. And he delivered a powerful truth, pointing people to God, who he was. So how can a story like this one about Paul in Athens 2,000 years ago, talking to uh, Athenian elites surrounded by 30,000 temples and gods, what does that have to do with us today when we leave here today? What's the, what's the big idea of this story? Very simply, I think this. There's not a person in this room who's not immune from idolatry. I'm talking with the church, believers here. You're not, out, you're not the pagan elites. If you know Jesus, as probably most of you do, you're the body of Christ. But there's not a person in this room who is immune from idolatry. This is what John the Apostle wrote in his first epistle. He said, we know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that. And we know that the Son of God has come. We know that. We know that he's given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. We've got a relationship. We know him. We are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is true. This is the true God in eternal life. 
We've got that nailed. We know it. And then the last phrase of his epistle, he writes this little phrase. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. <laughs> we know God. We're in his son. We know Jesus. <sighs> little children, guard yourself from idolatry, from idols. Brad Bigney in his book, Gospel Treason, Betraying the Gospel with Hidden Idols, says this. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, our minds, our affections more than God. Pretty simple. Idolatry is anything that captures our hearts, minds, affections more than God. He goes on and says, so what could be an idol in your life? His answer, anything. That's why we're in such trouble. Because absolutely anything, he says, can become an idol. Even a good thing when wanted too much, can become an idol. Idolatry, he says, is who or what you worship, what you long for, what your heart is set upon, what are the desires, the deep desires of your heart that become overwhelming. Paul Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer, said that interestingly and unsurprisingly, the New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate, life-ruling desires. He says, if idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for the drift away from God, idolatry, then that word desire, longings, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word that produces the same drift away from God. What, 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 what is the heart's desire? It could be good things. It could be marriage either wanting out of one or wanting one that you don't have children it could become all-consuming either having them or wanting to have them it could be that job or that better job and all of a sudden everything is oriented around that it can be my health wealth uh, my retirement portfolio my leisure what i want to do in my entertainment life or whatever else that relationship or that lack of relationship anything that cap begins to capture my heart and i i put such a focus on it, it could be a, a trial a tribulation a, a situation that just grabs my attention and my focus and all of a sudden i i find myself drifting from whom from the only one who is worthy of capturing my heart. And every one of us in this room are subject to that. On any given day, we are so sucked in to the things and the pleasures of this life. And it robs our soul. And folks, it's happening like epidemic proportions in the church of Jesus Christ today. We're drifting from God because we're erecting idols to things that we want. It's a self-focused life. What's best for me? What protects me? Where, where do I get my self-worth, my self-fulfillment, my self-identity? Everybody wants to find their identity. Personal comfort, personal happiness, personal gain. That's what we live for, is it not? 
And Paul is trying to tell these people in Athens, you know, why, why does that happen? Why do we erect idols? Because God has been obscured from us. We lose sight of his grandeur. We, we lose sight of who he is. God becomes ho-hum. That's why Paul is simply telling these Athenians the, the, the in, insanity of idolatry. Because there's a God in heaven who made the world and all things in it. He's the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't dwell in temples, as he points to the Parthenon. He doesn't dwell in temples that we erect. He's not a God of our own making. We don't put him in a box. Well, I'm mad at God. You know, he, he didn't do what I thought he was going to do. He didn't heal me. He didn't solve this problem. I had 50 people praying for me. God didn't answer the prayer. And God will say, I am not put in your box. I never have and I never will. I am the creator of the world, of the universe, and everything in it. And you're made in my image. You don't make me in your image. There is such an intensity in this message that Paul gave that is perfectly normal, he would say. And he's fixed the day of judgment. So you better change your thinking. You better repent. You better reorient your thinking, O pagan Athenian, O Christian follower, disciple of Jesus. A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, sums it up this way. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it will once again be worthy of him. In all her prayers and labors, this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of believers, passing on to the next generation of Christians, undimmed and undiminished the noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. And this will prove of greater value to that next generation more than anything that of science can devise. And then he says, my favorite quote from Tozer, you see what a man thinks about God is the most important defining thing about him and will determine the whole course of his life. Someone asked a, a brilliant theologian, Robert Dick Wilson, what your view of God is. Are you a big godder or a little godder? It's well worth asking a theologian. It's well worth asking any believer in Jesus Christ. As you walk out here today, I want to ask you that question. You've got a big God or you've got a little God. And I'm telling you, if you've got a little God, you're erecting idols. And they'll consume you. They will consume your life and you will not know the joy and peace and the joy, the happiness, the, the fulfillment that our Creator said He came to give us if we walk humbly before our God. We have a choice to make, folks. I have a choice to make. I'm, not, I'm preaching to myself here. What's my view of God? Who is he? Let's pray. Father, 
we desperately need to have fresh daily perspective of you. As the Apostle Paul would write in Philippians, he considered all things to be rubbish in view of the surpassing value of knowing you. Father, I would pray that there will be every person in this room, me too, that you would instill within us that deep desire to know you more intimately, more perfectly, to see you as the sovereign, transcendent God that you are and humble ourselves before you, the almighty King of kings and Lord of lords who deserves every ounce, Father, of our devotion. You are holy and there's no one like you and yet, Father, you have condescended to us. You wrapped yourself up in humanity as Jesus, you came. And in infinite love, you died for us. You paid for our sins because you desire a relationship restored back, that fellowship that we were created for. Father, those of us who have taken that free gift of eternal life, we are eternally grateful. But may, may we not, Father, take it for granted. Help us to see who you are, to bow our knee before you, even as we crawl up into your lap and say, Abba, Father, and find mercy and help in time of need. Because, Father, remind us often a day of judgment is upon us. And for the person in this room who doesn't know you as their personal Savior, it's eternal destruction separated for all of eternity apart from you. For those of us who know you, there's also a day coming where we will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. That's what you tell us in your word. And we'll give an account of our life lived on this earth for your glory or for our own. A big godder or a little godder. It's serious, Lord, and I pray that you'll press it upon, not because of my words. God forbid that my words will impress anything upon people. May your Holy Spirit direct us to see you that we might not erect our own idols. In Jesus' name, amen.